take up your Bibles together with me, will you, this morning? Let's turn to the book of Hebrews for our ongoing study as we teach verse by verse and line by line through this great book of the Bible. Turn there to chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, begin reading this morning in verse 20, verse 20, if you'd follow along as I read. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's? For this he did once, for all, when he offered up himself, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Would you bow in prayer with me, please? Father God, thank you for this that you've given us, your word, your truth. Thank you for all your love that you have shed upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Particularly, Lord, we thank you for his ongoing ministry to you, for us, and for your glory. Lord, we just ask to be able to learn the intricacies and the beauties of these truths laid out about our high priest, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A high priest by the oath of God. High priest by the oath of God. He was not made priest without an oath. I was wondering as I was studying this for these many months, why does God swear an oath at all? Why does God use oaths. Why is there one here that is being brought forward to us? And why does even God obligate himself in any way to men, I ask you? Why promise anything? Why swear? I've marked out a few descriptions of the oaths of God kind of prime our pump of thinking and worshiping this morning, because what we find in the first place is that the oaths of God are voluntary. The oaths of God are voluntary. He is not forced by anyone. He is God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. 
He is all everything, and yet he voluntarily makes oaths and gives his word to men. No one is behind the scenes forcing God. He voluntarily offers up these oaths. Thereby the oaths of God must be rather important. Oaths of God, I believe, are also blessed. The generosity of God has shown us, for in them and to us, by the way, we're undeserving men. Does God need to give you an oath on anything? I mean, who are we to say to God, give me your word on that? I need, I need a confirmation. Well, that's what we say to someone we don't trust. But God generously blesses. He favors men with his oaths. And they're effective as well. They're effective oaths. When God swears, something happens. Even when God first spoke in the Bible, we have his words, excuse me, recorded. In the beginning, God spoke. He declared, let there be light. There was light. When God swears an oath, whatever he has sworn happens. It's effective. It accomplishes what he determines because he has sworn it. So when God says that this is his oath, it's sure. And then finally, it's revelatory. So I was just reflecting on the oaths of God and why would God, why would God do this? Why would God swear an oath to me, to you, to anyone over the years? I think this tells us something about God. It reveals God to us. It explains the character of our God and he's voluntarily explaining himself to us. He is providing us with an interpretation of deity. For it is certain that there's one thing men are mixed up about, and that's deity, isn't it? What is God? How is God? Why is God? How far is God? Do I need to know God? Which God? Is there only one God? And he is declaring himself in these oaths and showing us about who he is. When he does even a punishment by oath, it tells us of his justice. When he is gracious and he makes an oath to Abraham and promises him a land and a, a family, a people, a nation, the generosity and graciousness of God is displayed. The holiness of God, the long-suffering nature of God in giving an oath to men who reciprocate almost nothing to him. Sometimes, don't you wonder, why does God keep his oaths? To those he's given them to are so unworthy of even carrying them. God is a God of oaths, and those who are his, those who are his people, they, they look to God to keep his oaths, and that becomes part of their relationship. I take you to Psalm 61. I'm just going to give you a smattering this morning of God and his oaths and the people who are depending upon those oaths of God. 
And I take you to David, the psalmist, the writer of hymns, the poet, laureate of God. Psalm 61, verse 7 we read, He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. I've marked that out near the very end. It's just an eight-verse psalm. And I take you there because there's something that is being declared by David that is dependent upon the person of God that we find revealed in the other verses of the psalm. Listen, verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. From his weakness, from his despair, from his overwhelmed heart, David cries out to God and looks to him as a rock that is higher than he. Verse 3, and you have been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. He then, with assurance, says, verse 4, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. And then he calls on us to meditate, Selah. There's a relationship here that I want, don't you? There's an understanding here of the certainty of his God and the help of his God that he can cry out with such honesty. I think we find it in the following verses. Look at verse 5. For you, O God, have heard my, my vows. Listen. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You've given me a heritage which is something only God in his power can declare. Verse 6, he says, You will prolong the, ling the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. How can he say these things? How can he trust in this way in his God? For it is God who declared to David by oath, that David would be the king of God's heart, of God's oath and swearing declaration from whom the great king would come. 2 Samuel 7. Read that sometime in the follow-up hymn that is written by David about it. Verse 8, the final verse of Psalm 61 says, So I will sing praise to your name forever. His understanding of his eternal walk with the Lord that goes beyond his life, the promises of God that have been made to him by oath, kept, and yet still he wants to live in such a way that he keeps his vows, his oaths. So I will sing praise to your name forever that, the purpose I will do that, that I may daily perform my vows. 
excuse me. It is over in Psalm 89 and verse 49, and I wish we had time to spend in that long psalm that is so full of these truths, but David again is depending upon what was sworn, I should say, Ethan the Ezraite is depending upon it. Verse 49, he says, Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses? He looks at Israel and he looks to God and he looks to God to be loving kind toward his people, to have mercy upon them is another word for that. The second line says, which you swore to David in your truth. You swore to David, Lord, keep your oath. We're looking for you to do it. It is even in Jeremiah that we hear the oath of the Lord being stated from a different point, not for blessing as he gave to David, but rather for the cursing of God's own people, for the refusal to obey him, their refusal to worship him, their constant going into idolatry. He says in Jeremiah 4.28, For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken. I have purposed and will not relent, nor will I turn back from it. When God swears to punish, it comes about and history has proven it true. In Acts chapter 2, a place, a place of a first sermon at the beginning of a church, the history of Israel is recounted by Peter and the promises and the foreshadowings, the prophecies of the coming Christ are brought forward. Quotations from the Old Testament, the prophet Joel in chapter 2 of Acts and also of David himself seeing the Lord before he had come that this is saying of David, and it's recorded here by Dr. Luke, verse 30, therefore being a prophet, speaking of David now, and knowing that God, listen, had sworn an oath to him, had sworn an oath to David, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He to be David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. How to deal with the oaths of the Lord is what we're studying in Hebrews, and the Hebrews, again, need to be reminded about the oaths of the Lord as concern his son and high priest Jesus. God established the high priesthood of Jesus the Christ. He established his priesthood by an oath. The text we're going to discover in the next few weeks, that there are four outcomes of the oath of God. Four outcomes of this oath of God. Two of them are creative, and two of them are appointments. Two creations of this oath and two appointments that occur from that same oath. It was given indelibly, which means you can't erase it. 
And it establishes Christ's position as high priest of the Hebrews and of the world forever. For the next few weeks, I plan to organize our thoughts and my thoughts on these outcomes, but I want to do it by making it as simple as I can at the beginning by giving three or excuse me, four headings for us to sort of wrap our minds around and keep our thoughts clear. The four words are these. Surety. Unchangeable. Fitting. And perfected. Surety. Unchangeable. Fitting. And perfected. This morning I want to start with surety. There are two creation outcomes of this oath of God. And the first outcome, the first creative outcome of this oath of God is surety. God's oath creates a surety in a better covenant. A surety in a better covenant. Let's go back to our text in Hebrews again. Chapter 7, verse 20. Inasmuch as he, this would be Jesus, was not made priest without an oath. That means he was made a priest by an oath. Verse 21. For they, now he is speaking again of the Levitical priests, even Aaron himself, for they have become priests without an oath. God never swore, Aaron and your sons, thou art priests. It is only to his own son that he swore and established him and gave a surety of a better covenant in this way. For they have become priests without an oath, he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest. And if you will understand for just a moment that sometimes our translations might be varying. Those of you who are in the New King James Version, like myself, might notice that I didn't read the rest of that quotation of David from Psalm 110, verse 4. And that's because in the better manuscripts, we don't have a continuation like we do in the New King of forever according to the order of Melchizedek that is unneeded and probably was a scribal addition because we have seen it just recently in chapter 7, verse 17. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The important addition to this quotation is found in verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest. That is the declarative oath of of God and God is creating surety through his unrelenting oath letter a in your notes his unrelenting oath God has sworn and will not relent we don't use relent too often in the english language in our common speaking it means to turn back from to change your mind on God when he is sworn he will not relent, and he reminds us of his character in that way. That he does not turn back from whatever it is he swears. He follows through on. It is sure. His unrelenting oath is sure. 
The swearing he has made is that you are, Jesus, you are a priest. There's a contrast here between the Levitical priests and Jesus. For they became priests without an oath, he by an oath. From God himself. So it is by the authority vested in God that Jesus now is a priest unto God. They, without an oath, practiced a ministry in the temple. Jesus, by an oath, and now has the office, the position of a priest, because of God's swearing. I want to remind you that this is a theme that our very exquisite Greek rhetorician is placing throughout this book of Hebrews. The swearing of God has been brought to our attention. I want to remind you of it because when God swears, there's always a question to be asked and answered. When God swears something, the question is this. Do you believe it? If God swore something, do you believe it? Or are you calling into question the very person, the power, authority, and status of God? Are you a believer in the oaths of God? Or are you a denier of the oaths of God? Or are you a doubter of the oaths of God? Sometimes most people will say, well, I just doubt it. Thereby want to distance themselves a little bit of being a direct denier. Do you believe it? Or not? God has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest. God takes his own oaths very seriously, even if men do not. It was the Hebrews that we are given this example from of old who were wandering in their wilderness days, though God had promised them by an oath that he would give their father Abraham a land a land flowing in milk and honey, a land where they would be a great nation, a land where God would provide, a land where God himself said he would come and tabernacle, dwell among them, and they got into the wilderness, and what did they do? They cried their eyes out at every difficulty along the way and said to Moses, have you brought us out here to die? Those words are not against Moses. Those words are against God, who swore by an oath that he would deliver them to the promised land. Do you believe it or not? It's one thing sitting in a nice cozy church with comfort control, or as they were sitting in the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen, fed by the Nile River with abundant food. Yes, they're slaves now, but they're eating well. There's always water. But there wasn't in the wilderness. God swore to them, and we, were, we, we remember, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10, Therefore, God said, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. See, something's going on here with oaths and knowing God and believing God. 
That's what God is saying. They always go astray in their heart. There's something that's a heart problem. They have not known my ways. They don't know who I am. Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 3, So I swore, God says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is a quotation in Hebrews 3, the swearing of God again. Then a warning is given to these modern Hebrews, these Hebrews of the New Covenant Church of Christ, and thereby also to us. Verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you, hear this, an evil heart what of what? Of unbelief. Who when you get into the trials and the difficulties of the journey of life on the promissory note of God that he's leading you into the land of promise to deliver you into the land of rest that you doubt him and you disbelieve him and you complain against him. Oh my goodness, did this just come into church? It's getting a little hot. An evil heart of unbelief, listen, in departing from the living God. When you don't take God at his oath, at his swearing, at his word, you are being a functional unbeliever. And Israel was functionally denying the promise of God to his face, to his man, who can smack a rock and bring out water, who can part the Red Sea. By the power of God. Who every day has been feeding them manna in the wilderness for 40 years. I wonder if he's going to keep us alive. That's how fickle human sin is. We would like to say, well, if I had been there. Huh? Have you ever done this? You're reading to the Israelites. You're like, these people, they stink. They don't believe nothing. They complain the whole time. And we say sometimes we sit back in our easy chair flicking through the channels. Man, if I'd have been there, I'd have been solid, baby. Hey, what's wrong with this thing? Hey, my TV won't work. What's wrong? Hey, somebody give me the phone. This is destroying my whole day. And I use that as an example because that's a luxury item. You don't actually need your TV to live. I found this out a few months ago, and it's amazing. You do need water to live. They didn't have water. We can't live without a phone. I wonder who's weaker. Okay, enough of that. I'm back to the real sermon. In Hebrews again, the oath of God is mentioned again to these people, and thereby to us, Hebrews 4 now, verse 3. For we who have believed, listen, we who have believed, the writer says, do enter that rest. So how do you get into the rest of God? Not by works which you have done, but by belief which you have accomplished. You believe the oath of God. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, which of course he's implying, meaning that if he can swear and say you won't, that that means he keeps his promise and there is a rest to be entered in by faith. 
although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What? Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and, on, and again in this place, and they, have not, they shall not enter my rest. The oath of God, the oath of God, the oath of God, God said, I rest. When God said he took this rest, it means that he is providing a rest, and it's an applicable rest, a Sabbath rest, for his people. And they were denying even his creative work and his cessation of that work that established at the foundation of the world a rest. To believe in the rest of God is to believe in the creation of God. You can't say, I believe in the creation of God, and don't believe in the rest of God the two go together inseparably. And the sin of Israel was not keeping them together, the God of creation with the God of promised rest. In Hebrews chapter 6, again, we have the promissory notes of God and by way of swearing comes to us in a little bit different verbiage in the English. Hebrews 6.13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Belief in the promise equals patient endurance, believing the promise. The unrelenting promise of God, the unrelenting oaths of God, he does not turn back from them. So knowing God is knowing a God who gives oaths. Faith in God is trusting the oaths of God through the time period until they're fulfilled. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest. The sworn high priest of God is a new high priest of a new covenant. The old priests were not established with an oath. This priest was established with the very oath of God. Do you believe it? Are you following him as a high priest? I say again, I think this is a weakness in the evangelical church to have so turned from the ways of Catholicism and an adulterated priesthood that we do not speak of the priesthood of Christ, of the order of Melchizedek, and so ostensibly we become ignorant deniers of that position which he carries. We have a, a hole in our relationship with Jesus. To really know him as he is and who he is and how he is before God is to know him not just as Savior and Lord, but as the high priest of God. 
For that's the only way humans come to God. See, the new covenant that we teach, if taught apart from the new high priest, is half a job, as my dad used to say. My dad used to say, if you're going to do a job, do the whole job. If you haven't done the whole job, you've done half a job, which, of course, is no job at all. So we may not teach the new covenant in this church called by Christ's name without teaching the high priestly ministry that is a functional part of that covenant, which takes me to letter B in your notes. We can have surety in the high priesthood of Jesus the order of Melchizedek, because of the oath of God, that is what we believe. But it also provides us a surety of a better covenant. A surety of a better covenant. Let's look at verse 22 now of chapter 7 of Hebrews. It declares, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Covenant. The oath of God is sure. And by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Old word, surety. I left it even in your notes. I know some of your translations may have the word guarantee, which is a good word in itself, but I don't think quite covers all of the bases. Egus in the, in the Greek doesn't sound very dynamic, does it? But it does mean this, and I take this directly from a lexographer, and he helps us define this with specificity toward this very verse, where this Greek term is used. This surety in Jesus. It actually reads, Egus Jesus. He says, and I quote, this is the definition. This is the definition. He starts with the personal pronoun he. He by whom. He by whom we get full assurance. Let me start that again. He by whom we get full assurance of the more excellent covenant made by God with us. How do we have assurance in the new covenant that God has given us? It is this assurance that comes only this way, this surety that comes only by a he. Let me read that again. He by whom we get full assurance of the more excellent covenant made by God with us. Now I go on. And of the truth and stability of of the promises connected with it. Chapter 8, we have to study the new covenant given in Jeremiah. Why do we have to do that? Because the full copy of it has been taken from the book of Jeremiah 31 and placed in chapter 8 of Hebrews. We will study it. For now, suffice it to say, there's much to it. There are many promises in it that God is declaring and swearing. A surety of a better covenant even through a person who he has sworn into position to minister that covenant. 
The high priest Jesus does not minister the Levitical covenant, does not minister the law of Moses. He ministers this new covenant. A surety of a certain kind of covenant that God here calls better. A better covenant, which will now become a theme running throughout Hebrews. Better than the old one. The Levitical priests were good, but they were men. They were fallible. They were incomplete. They sinned. They were only by genetics did they get into the job. There were no spiritual qualifications. They weren't as good as this high priest Jesus who comes from the line of Melchizedek, who is a perfect man, who has no genealogy or beginning of days. He is the ever-living high priest. He's better. And so for there he also administers a better covenant, a better declaration of God. It's an oath. I wondered even as I was studying this and trying to figure out how to present this portion to you, and I only wanted surety to be in your minds. This idea that God has guaranteed something through Christ and his priestly ministry. And I, I just asking myself, why isn't this more taught? And why does there seem to be a problem with even spending time on the oath of God? Because you know the next verses, those are the big preachy ones. These, these three here we're dealing with today, they don't preach as good. Here, let me give you a commercial. This is, this, here comes one of the most oft-preached verses in history. It's verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. And that does preach, and I intend to enjoy myself thoroughly. But on this, we're on the oath. We're on engendering in God's people an assurance, a confidence that what God has sworn is because he is. And I think we have become jaded. Remember Jesus Christ was standing before his crucifixion with a man who came from a jaded society. He came from a man who was a powerful being in the world of Rome. And he was over the entire area of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And Jesus talks to him about the truth. And Pilate says these words, what is truth? What is truth? And I hit me, that's the age we live in. This is today. The news is full of what everyone's telling us is misinformation. We have, we have Elon Musk who has just bought back Twitter and he's exposing that there's been misinformation here and misinformation there. And there's others on the other side saying, I don't think that's, a, that's information. What he says is information. They said, that's information. This isn't right. That's, well, you said this is, and you're swearing by it. And he says, that is, and they swear by it. And they stand up, and they do things before us, and they all swear by it. And they get on TV, and they look so nice, and they got suits, and they got ties, and they got nice coys, and these gals are all the most beautiful things in the world. And they say, believe us! And we sit back in our chairs and we say, what is truth? Who can I believe? We're jaded. 
We're so sick of it that we don't want to believe anybody anymore about anything and it bleeds into the Bible. So when we get to a text on the oaths of God, it now has become boring and irrelevant and not very often preached. But that is upon whom being saved to the uttermost hangs is on the very oath and person of God who has sworn to his son you are a priest. And in saying that all the other priests are now done away with. Somebody comes up and tells me they're a priest of the Lord God Most High. I'm going to say, liar, liar, pants on fire. You can't fill those shoes. No man could. Till Jesus. So this better covenant is so undermined by the oaths that are so often broken in our society. I mean, the basic unit of society is marriage. Is marriage. We don't even know what it is anymore. Or so our government tells us. They've redefined marriage. They have taken away from the oath of God that says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and what God has joined together, what? Let no man put asunder. God swore that, but our government thinks they can redefine that and then tell us we won't get funding we won't get status as a 401c3. And they just passed that law. With Republican help. Who can we trust? I'm sick of it. But this we can trust. That when God swears, he swears better than they swear. How many people have stood up and said, I will defend the Constitution of the United States of America and then have gone out to stick it to the people? And it started with we the people in order to form a more perfect union. This is not a nationalistic sermon. This is a sermon about breaking oaths and keeping oaths. And only God keeps oaths. And if we believe it, then we are people of faith. And we will live through hellfire. We will live through torment. We will live without water. We will live without resources. We will live without being called a nonprofit organization. Who cares? So you used to say in the old days, now put that in your pipe and smoke it. We're depending upon the oath of God with a real covenant behind us. It is an unrelenting oath, and that unrelenting oath equals a man, Jesus, the great high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He is, his name is, the last word in Greek in verse 22. 
We read it in English. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. It should read better. By so much more, a better covenant, surety, Jesus. Numbers 23, 19, God, God says this. He says it to a man who wants to put words of an oath in God's mouth. Balaam, son of Balaam. He's been charged by his king to curse Israel. And he can't do it. And so the king is reminded of this by a false prophet. In Numbers 23, 19, he declares, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent, that he should turn back from what he has said. Has he said, and he will not do? And has he spoken, and he will not make good? Christians, that's the crust of, crux of Christianity. Do you believe God said he will do what he will do through his son Jesus Christ? And if you do, then you walk like you believe it. You can't get talked out of it because no one can swear higher than God's swearing. How do you know that's true? Well, you tell them because God swore it. And if God swore it, he's not like a man that he should lie. I'm sick of men lying. You know what? I'm sick of me when I lie. You say, oh, pastor, did you just say that in church? You've ever lied? Oh, my goodness, yes. Ask my wife. Oh, no, you can't be pastor anymore. Well, then you can't be Christians anymore either. You're men, you fail. I'm not saying this is license to fail. This is honesty time. In comparison to God, men lie. God never lies. If you want something to depend on, don't depend on you. That's pride. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. If you want to stand on somebody else, wrong. They'll fall too. There is no president that will save us. There is no king who can deliver us that is from this world of man. There is only one who will always speak truth. There is one who has a new covenant taking force even now, and he is not a man that he should lie. And what he spoke he will make good on of assurance, of a surety. The surety of God is under good security. I just watched one of those armored trucks go down the road in front of me the other day. Man, those things look tough, don't they? You know, I don't really want to work in it, but I want to drive one like for a week. You know, you put your stuff in there, you know. Oh, you got your guns with you, Dave? Yeah, where are they? I locked them inside. They're safe. No problem. How much money you got? Ah, you'd have to try and find out. See if you can get in there. Then you can always have one of your buddies in there with a gun, you know. They're tight. But that isn't close to God. So we trust on so many things that are on earth and the only person that deserves it is a person. We like to say, well, I'm going to need some kind of guarantee on, on, on that. Well, you have one. 
the Holy Spirit in you. Paul said, Christ in me is to live. The Holy Spirit in you, Paul says in Ephesians, is a guarantee of the promise. And all of this gets back to something that's so wonderful that I had to save it to the last few minutes. We finished up last week in verse 19 with drawing near. Drawing near. See, there, there's a person involved with a drawing near. There's a relationship involved with a drawing near. There's a faith involved with a drawing near. There's a confidence involved with a drawing near. With the new law. Verse 19, we read, the law made nothing perfect, nothing complete. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope, listen, through which we draw near to God. Through which we draw near to God. Chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. And in the English, you can't see it. I put it in your notes, I believe. You have some squiggly lines that you can't read in your notes. Yeah, those are Greek. And people say, oh, thank you, Pastor. Uh, As soon as I learn that, I'll get right on this. I put it in there just so you can compare letters. Look at the first word of both of the particles, actually, that I've given you in, in the Greek. One in 1719. Kratanos, or Kratanos, excuse me. And then in 722, Kratanos, same word. And then you'll notice, if you stay in 722, the last two words are egus Jesus. Surety, Jesus. We have it translated. The last three words of the Greek line I gave you, egidzamen to theo. Egidzamen, from the root, egidzu. They're from the same root word. One's surety, the other is translated, draw near. Ooh, that's cool. Some of you are saying, like, not to me. When we think guarantees, when we think assurance and a promise, do we think drawing near? Maybe we do. Have you ever made a covenant with a banker? I.e., have you ever gotten a loan? Well, the The banker wants to be sure he has a surety, a guarantee you're going to pay it back. And he he wants something, right? He wants to make sure that you have enough money to pay this off every month. That's one thing. But that doesn't get you the loan, does it? No, 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 no. You need to have something like collateral or a down payment, which means money Behind the money you're trying to borrow. And us poor people always say, well, if I had money, 
I wouldn't be here asking you for money. But he says, well, you got to have money so that you can ask me for money. That's the way this works. Now, let me put it to you this way. <laughs> have you ever not been able to pay back the money that you owe the banker on a particular month? You're just not really sure. Do you want to go visit the banker that day? <laughs> no, when you can't pay, you don't draw near. You're like running away. That's why there are agents who collect defaulted loans. Because people aren't drawing near, they're running away. You're starting to see the picture. But if you're sure, I mean, what's the biggest debt we owe? I used to sing an old, an old chorus. I owe a debt I cannot pay. He, uh, no, I have a debt I cannot pay. He paid the debt that I owe. Our debt is sin. And the consequence of sin is death and the judgment of God, very God. Why do men run from God? Why did Adam and Eve run from God in the garden and draw away from him? Why was it that God had to pursue them into the garden? Why was it God who had to give them clothing? Why was it God who came after them? What was it about man at the time where Abraham was walking on the earth? Already he had had to destroy the entirety of man except for eight because men were running from God, not to God. Men weren't trusting in God as an assurity. So God came and he made a covenant with a man, an indelible covenant with Abraham and said through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Do you believe me? Then get out of Ur of Chaldees and go to a land that I will show you. You're never actually going to own it, but I'm going to show it to you. He is the one who lived in the promise. So you can't, we can't even begin to study chapter 11, the faith chapter of Hebrews until we understand this because you won't understand faith. You won't understand belief. You won't understand surety, which is equal to drawing near to God. Here's how it works in these two verses. Verse 19. We have a better hope through which we draw near to God. This means that we draw near unto God through a better hope, and that better hope is Jesus. Verse 22 is building on that. That there's a surety in Jesus, an egus Jesus. His surety of a better covenant. And so Jesus then is standing near to God. And he's saying to God, I guarantee your promise and their promise in it. I am near to God. Come here with me and stand near to God. It is the high priestly ministry that first enters into the Holy of Holies and pays the price and covers it in blood and establishes a new and better covenant. And then he stays by God. Where is he? What does the Bible keep saying? He's at the right 
hand of God. And he is ministering there as the high priest of God, near to God, and he says to you, come near. Therefore, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come how? Boldly to the throne of grace. We have an assurity, a nearness. We're so sure we can come. We're so positive we can go. We're absolutely, without a doubt, Dependent upon Jesus. He paid the debt. I can come. He paid the debt of the past. He paid the debt of my sin of the present. He paid the debt of my sin in the future. I can come. Is that what your faith is like? Or is it I can't come today? I can't open my Bible today. I, I lied. God won't want to see me. I cheated. God won't let me in. I was on the internet again. You fill in the blank. No. That's unbelief. Surety that Jesus is your surety. Then you can believe the new covenant. And we'll get to that soon. But now you've got to decide. Believe it and draw near or not. Let's pray. Help us understand, Lord. Overcome our immaturity. Overcome our ignorance. Overcome our immature and ignorant faith in you that always wants to retain an idea that you want to cast us out even after we believed in your son Jesus. That's a lie of the devil and a lie of our sinful flesh. Lead us to the rock that is higher than I when I am overwhelmed. Lead me to Jesus, our great high priest, who will usher me into your presence where I might find grace and receive mercy, which is the place where I admit my guilt, and it's covered in mercy at the mercy seat of God. We pray this in Jesus' name in full belief. Everybody say it with me. Amen.